Welcome to uh, our family, Every Nation Church family. It is great to be with you all. My name is Christian Libba. Um, it is an honor for me to preach this morning in a super cool series that we have been busy with. We're ending the series off this morning. The series has been awesome. It is called The Songs We, Seem, we Sing, the meaning behind the carols that we've sung about. And I must be honest. I have to be honest with you all. When I was a young teenage boy... My parents loved going to carols by candlelight, and we sung the carols, and I got very bored. I did not like Christmas carols when I was young. Um, it was boring. Um, it wasn't uh, up there with Black Eyed Peas vibes, which was my, was my, my vibe, and um, and it was mainly because I didn't understand them. I didn't understand the carols. They used words like thee, thou, thart, and, and that. And I didn't understand those words. I didn't understand the carols. I didn't understand the meanings behind them. So when I saw that we're doing a series about the carols, I thought, sure. Um, okay, let's trust God for this one. And then I delved into this sermon and man, I, I, I want to repent in sackcloth and ash because these carols are absolutely profound, so profound. So I really hope that you all have been enjoying this series, enjoying just understanding once again the meaning behind these carols, uh, the significance, how the authors, when they wrote them, how they knew and experienced God through these songs, and that we will have the same experience. That's what I'm trusting for this morning. And so this morning I'm preaching about a carol that's not that famous in South Africa. We just sung it for the first time, I think, in this church ever. We have sung that carol just for this sermon. Thank you so much, band. Band was very cross with me because Christmas carols are the most difficult songs to play, okay? If you're a musician... Do your best. Go get this carol. Try and get a couple of musicians together and show me what you got. That is, that is the band giggling, okay? They know, they know, they know. But it is O Come Emmanuel. That's the, that's, the, that's the topic for this morning. I'm going to be preaching about this carol. So let me give you a little bit of a background about this carol. This carol takes us back. Wow, thank you. That's some EQing there, Vian. This carol takes us back to the 8th and 9th centuries. That's 1,200 years. 1,200 years, that's 30 generations ago. The monastics, which was a group of Christians who, um, what they did was they sold all their possessions and they lived separate from the world, and their whole purpose, what they were living for, was just seeking God, praying day and night. And so the monastics, they had these seven songs that they would sing before Christmas Eve, and they became known as the seven O antiphons. An antiphon is a short chant sung 
as a refrain, okay? There were seven of them. I'm going to give you all seven, and they were singing one each day leading up to Christmas. You can go to the next slide. There's the, the seven. There's O Sepensha Arunai, Radix Jesse, Clavis David, Oriens, Rex Genitiam. I love that one, you know. King of the Gentiles. And then on Christmas Eve or the night before Christmas Eve, they would sing O Emmanuel. Now, if you took... If you took the first letter of each word, I bolded them. On the seventh day, when they look back, and you took the first letter, the E of Emmanuel, the R, the O, the C, R, A, it goes, Erocras, which is Latin for, I will be present tomorrow. Man, they had a way with words. And that is what Emmanuel is all about. Oh, come, Emmanuel, God with us. I will be present tomorrow. When they were singing this song, the monastics were in anticipation for what the next day would signify, that God became man. And it's not just them. Israel was in anticipation for years, that one day God would come Himself, break down all barriers separating us and Him, and solve the problem of this world and be with us. And so, today, this sermon being about God with us, I'm praying, guys, that all familiarity will be broken. We would understand what it means. What is the significance that God is with us? What are the implications to our lives? And how, and should, how can and should we respond? What does it mean that God is with us? What are the implications to your life? And how are we going to respond? So I'm going to read. That's really, we become so familiar with the Christian message. So familiar with Christmas, so familiar with the carols, the songs we sing. Whenever you do something in repetition, you become familiar with it. It becomes part of your life. We need to break familiarity this morning. Because there's three words, God with us. Seemingly insignificant, but they carry the weight of the world. We need to feel that weight this morning. Because if you do... You will walk away from this sermon changed, but not just this sermon. The rest of your life, you'll gradually, consistently, and constantly be changed into an expression of God being with us. So let's read. We're going to read of the announcement of Jesus as Emmanuel. It's from Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. And what's happening here is Mary is pregnant, and Joseph says, wasn't me. But Joseph is betrothed to be married to Mary, and her being pregnant is a very big shame in that culture. And so he's a good man, Joseph is, and he's considering to divorce her silently. What they would actually do, what the law stated was, it was grounds to divorce and stone for what she did. But Joseph was a good man, and he didn't want to do that to Mary. He didn't want to even shame her. He would divorce her quietly. 
And he's considering this, and then this scripture happens. It says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, it wasn't you, but it also wasn't anybody else. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Turn to the person next to you, say to them, God with us. Now turn to your second choice of person and tell them God is also with you. (laughs) Now I want to say, there is not a Christian scholar today that I know of that disputes the fact that Jesus Christ is God. When I say Jesus Christ is God, it is directly claimed and constantly implied Throughout the whole New Testament. When I say Jesus is God, I'm talking about the Trinitarian God, the, the God three in one. Godhead three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son is going to become man, it's going to be called Jesus Christ. That Trinitarian God breathed creation into being. That Trinitarian God appeared to Abraham and had a meal with him, which is insane. That Trinitarian God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. That Trinitarian God is all over history, and that Trinitarian God is now going to become a man. No one disputes that. But what does that mean? First point, what does it mean that God is with us? It means everything. It means everything. And not everything as in everything. It means everything as in I'm at a loss for words. To describe to you the value of what it means. So I'm just going to tell you more value than you could ever think. I cannot describe this to you, but I will try. First thing it means, it means that historically, everything that has been anticipated since the dawn of time that will restore and save mankind and bring hope to us all, has become reality. It's no longer just anticipation. It is now reality, okay? We can agree that there's something wrong in this world. People kill, deceive, greedy. People are corrupt, self-centered. Families fall apart. The most innocent of innocent babies who do not deserve it die at the hands of evil men who are not held accountable, or they die at the hands of sickness. There's an issue, there's a condition in this world, it is called death. It is called sin, and there's something wrong. And Isaiah 59, verse 2, is the thing that I'm going to preach about later in my notes, and not yet. But all of mankind has been in anticipation for a Savior to come. Jumping myself ahead. And so the Bible and the ancient Israelites were no exception. Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14. 
Isaiah 7 verse 14 was written 700 years prior. That's a prophecy. And in that prophecy, there's actually more than one prophecy. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Prophecy number one, a virgin will become pregnant. What? And she will conceive and she will call, she will have a son, not a daughter, another prophecy. And will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus fulfilled between 324 and 450 direct prophecies. The Bible is an anticipation that there's going to be one and only one person It's going to come. It's going to set everything right. And that is God Himself. When He comes, when God is with us, everything is going to be okay. Everything. Now, I was looking for, um, for an analogy, and I couldn't think of one, but I'm going to create one, okay? I'm going to create just a quick analogy, like a, like a parable of Jesus, okay? Here we go. There was a boy who was abandoned as a baby, set on the porch of a random stranger. The stranger took the baby in, strangers, married couple. But the father of the married couple was an abusive man. He was a drunkard and unfaithful to his wife. And he would beat her in front of the boy. And the boy would grow up never being good enough for this man, wanting to protect his mother, but never being able to. This boy would go to school with anger, this boy uh, would bully other boys and then be disciplined until he bleeds by this father. This boy would be withheld of food. And this boy every night would sit in his bed in the corner, close his ears, and would pray. And would say, whoever is out there, save me. Change this situation. And then one day, a man saw this boy. A man got to know this boy in school. And the more this boy, he, got, he built a relationship with this boy, the more he realized the potential on this boy's life. The more he believed in this boy. And he took this boy, and he took him out of that house, gave him a proper education, started teaching him about the truth of Jesus Christ. When this boy came to faith in Jesus... This boy went on to change the world despite his circumstances. There's a little bit of a hybrid in my story because there's part of the story that I just told you is actually the story of Sir Isaac Newton, one of the greatest scientists all of history, Christian man, but born in one of the most terrible circumstances. Can you imagine being that person? You're in anticipation because everything is wrong. Everything is broken. Everything is terrible. And you're waiting for just one person, one thing, something to happen that's going to change everything. It's going to save your situation. It is going to be okay. And Emmanuel is that one. That's the first thing that it means that God is with us. It means 
that it doesn't matter what you're sitting here with today, what you need, what you're hoping for, what will change circumstances, what will change our country, what will save ESCOM, is if the whole board and every freaking ministry, minister that's got to do with ESCOM gets saved, has God with them, that's all that's going to help. But there is the possibility because the great Emmanuel did come 2,000 years ago. That's what it means. Secondly, it means that that same almighty, holy, powerful God has a primary desire. And that primary desire is to have a relationship with you and with me and with us. He has a primary desire to have a relationship with us. I watched the testimony of a guy this week. It was an awesome testimony on social media. He said the way that he came to faith in God was he was sitting, he, he grew up in an atheistic household, uh, and he was sitting in church, he was listening to a sermon, a friend invited him, he was listening to a sermon, and this guy was sharing an awesome message, and as he's listening to this message, he realizes that if God is God, who is God? Then God does not need him at all. Doesn't need his worship, doesn't need his faith, he doesn't need his gifts, doesn't need his life. God is completely self-sufficient within himself. God needs no one and nothing. And if God is God, then God does not need him at all. So why then would God give up his life for him? And he concluded that the only reasonable conclusion, his, his words, is I could come up with was that he loved me more than anyone possibly ever could. And I was completely starving for that love. The only reason why God became man was not because he needed you. It was because he loved you. For God so loved the world, gave his only son. That's why he came. And these are, this is the two things. This is all I could give you right now. That's what it means. That you, all that you have hoped for has become, all that you have hoped for, dreamed of, to save you has become reality. But more than that, God desires to love you and have a relationship with you. So what are the implications of this? Well, his name would be named Jesus. His name would be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the first implication is that you are saved from your sins. Now, as I said, there's something wrong in this world. Now I will share Isaiah 59 verse 2 with you. And Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, It is your sins that have caused separation from you and God. It is your sins. Sins, I'm going to, just a summary of what that word means. It is a condition, not just action. It's actually a condition of the heart that is contrary or inconsistent with God's heart. Okay, there's a whole study. There's a doctrine that you can go and study about the doctrine of sin. I'll give you one sentence, short sentence. There's many sentences for this morning. This sentence, the meaning of sin, what sin is. It is a condition of the heart that is contrary or inconsistent with God's heart. That is sin. It's not just action. It is thoughts as well. It's not just thought. It is intention as well. It's not just intention. It is a condition. And that condition 
causes separation between you and God. And your separation between you and God causes the condition to get worse. And the worse the condition gets, the further you're separated, the further you're separated, the worse the condition gets. You're in a death cycle. Terrible. One way that you can get out of the cycle is if God came with us, interrupted the cycle, took the punishment for the sin, forgave the sin, and said, if you believe, I restore the condition. And I restore relationship. And because of that, it can never be broken again. The implication of God being with us, you're saved from your sin. You have no reason to sin. No reason. You don't need it. You've got Jesus. You don't need it. That is why Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Now, isn't that narrow-minded? Isn't it narrow-minded to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved? There might be many ways to be saved. How is it so narrow-minded to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved? It might be narrow-minded, but I say it's not in the same way that when you are sick and I have a pull, and I say, this pull will heal your sickness. That's not narrow-minded. Is it? No? This pull will heal your sickness. Here's the question you ask. It either will or it won't. But you need to investigate whether the pill will, will heal your sickness or not. But to say that it will heal your sickness is not narrow-minded. The same way. Jesus Christ is either the way or is not. But to say He is the way is not narrow-minded. You, you need to discover and find, is Jesus the only way or not? But if you do say He is the only way, then you will be shamed by the world and say you're narrow-minded. That's the second implication of God with us. The second implication, if you receive Jesus Christ, God with us, you will be shamed. You will be shamed. Look at Mary and Joseph's shame. I shared that briefly in the, in the intro. The whole, what, what was Joseph going to say to his friends? The Holy Spirit made her pregnant. Oh, really, Joseph? It was a recipe to be shamed. Here comes the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. He comes into a family's life, and the first thing that happens to that family is shame. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, there's a good chance the same will happen to you too. There's a good chance. There's two forces in this world. When you are for the one, you're against the other, and same way around. When Jesus Christ comes into this world, He divides those two forces. And whether, whichever one you stand on the side of, you will face the ridicule of the other one. Or the judgment. So, luckily, the third implication is also true. God with us means we will never be alone. You will never be alone. One of my favorite um, analogies, or actually stories, that illustrates the fact that we will never be alone is in the Old Testament, okay? Daniel and his friends, they're in exile, they're in Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Babylon, uh, Daniel is the only one who can interpret the dream. So he interprets the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar is wowed by the fact, and he, and he sets Daniel as a high-ranking official in Babylon, and Daniel asks, but can his friends also be high-ranking officials? Now, the, uh, the, the three of them, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, 
I did my best there, okay? It's Babylonian names. I'm not Babylonian. But how cool would it be if I was Babylonian, right? But here's these three friends, and they are experiencing the first implication. They're saved from their sins because of their faith in God. And because of their faith in God, they remain faithful to God, and God elevates them in the kingdom, and they become high-ranking officials in Babylon, which is incredible. But then they experience the second implication. They refuse to bow down to the gods of Babylon, which Herod had, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set in place for them to worship. They refuse to do that. So I want to ask you a question. What are the idols that this world is calling you to bow down to? They refused. What are the idols that you are tempted to bow down to? Now, when they refused, they were shamed to the king. And the king was angry that they wouldn't bow down. So he had them taken and thrown into a fiery furnace that was so hot that the guards who threw them in there burnt up and died. So there the three of them are in the oven. They're in the fire. Pause. I want to ask you a question. I think all of us at some point in this year felt like we're going through a fire. If you reflect back at this year, what was the fire you were going through? What is perhaps the shame that you experienced because of your faith in Jesus Christ? What is the persecution you faced? What is the fire that you have gone through? And here these three friends are in the oven and they're going through a fire. But the most incredible thing happens. They experience implication number three. I want to read to you Daniel chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jesus Christ in the fiery furnace. What is it? 500 years before his birth. God with us in the fire. Friends, we might not be spared from the fire. But if you understand the implications of God with us, you will know you will never go through another one alone. And that changes everything. That changes everything. This brings me to my final point. How can and should we respond to God being with us? And here I want to invite the band up. You guys can, can come up. Because we're going we're gonna to sing a song as response. Or ponder God as a response. But there's three quick things I want to share with you. How, how we can and how we should respond to this truth. The main way we respond is with courage. I want to call this church to respond with courage. Firstly, it's going to take courage to admit that you need a Savior. If the implication is that you're saved from your sins, then you need the courage to say, well, I am a sinner. Sinful. I still have sins. And I need a Savior. 
If I was going to save a person hanging from a cliff, I would need that person to look up to me, to let go of the cliff and take my hand, to let go of what they're trusting to pull them up from the cliff and grab my hands so that I can pull them up. The only person that Jesus Christ cannot save is, this, is the one that says, I'll save myself. I'll find my own way to be saved, thank you. You need courage. And if you can't do that, if you can't say, I need a savior, I make mistakes, I am a failure, I need a savior, I'm a rapper, then look at Jesus. Look at, at the courage that Jesus took to save you. He forsook his throne, became a man, and knowingly took the worst possible death in his crucifixion. If you look at his courage, I promise you will find the courage to say you need him. Secondly, you're going to need courage to take the world's shame, right? Joseph, Mary, Daniel, all of them, they had to face up to that shame. If you're a Christian, your life speaks the words and of the person of Jesus Christ. You're not always going to be comfortable, popular, or loved by this world. The incredible thing is, if you put Jesus in your life, He will be your honor. If you make Jesus Lord of your life, then it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter if the world rejects you because He accepts you. It doesn't matter if the world shuns you because He takes you in. It doesn't matter if the world threatens you because He protects you. God accepts you. God protects you. You're going to need courage to love God like He loves you. Man, this comes so natural when Jesus saves us. This comes so natural. When you love God the way that He loves you, when you know the love of God, when you know what it means, God with us, Sometimes you might leave this hall. You're going to drive in your car. You're going to do something silly and you're going to think, oh, God doesn't want me. The reality is he's sitting next to the car, next to you in the car. He's looking at you and he's like, yes, I do. Stop it. Stop condemning yourself. Stop shaming yourself. That's what Jesus, why he was naked on a cross. He, was, he didn't have clothes on, on that cross. Shamed. So that you don't have to. It's not shame that's going to change you. It's not condemnation that's going to take away the sin. It's God with us that's going to take it away. It's God with us that's going to change everything. And you'll see. You can love Him the way He loves you.